Welcome to Hi-Fi Nation for Slate Plus. Barry Lamb here. This week, unlike the other weeks, I am not going to be having an extended discussion about the episode with a special guest. Rather, I'm going to give you some outtakes, some discussions that didn't make it into the main episode, but that they were really interesting in the course of the interviews I did for the episode. I have clips from my interview with Judge Frederick Block, most notably about his views on mandatory minimums and his views about prosecutorial immunity. Uh, I have an extended discussion with Zachary Hoskins on the types of proportionality that are used in sentencing guidelines and in sentencing individuals. And finally, I have a discussion with Taya Johnson about the power that fictional pleas give to prosecutors in their negotiation for plea bargains. First, we have Judge Block. 13% of all of the criminal cases involve statutory minimums. And that 13% area, the judge has no discretion at all. It's just a messenger boy for the uh, legislative branch of government to announce the sentence to the person who is subject to a mandatory minimum. Uh, and I think it's wrong. The judge should be the one to decide sentence and not the political branch of our government. Now, why is that? Why should judges be? Because, you know, we're looking really, because uh, we don't have, uh, nor should we have, a political reason for imposing a sentence. Uh, but Congress does. I mean, uh, you know, if they really want to be tough on crime or they want to really be tough on child pornography, which is not a good thing, but there are 15-year mandatory minimums there, 10-year mandatory minimums, uh, a lot of times their motivation is not because they're looking at what seems to be the most reasonable and rational way to go about sentencing somebody. They're looking at their constituency, their base, how it plays politically. That's an X factor, which I don't think belongs in the sentencing dynamic. Sentencing should be based purely on the nature of the crime, the nature of the person you're sentencing. It should not have any political oversight at all in that type of... Uh, that's that, that, that would, that's just as wrong as can be, as far as I'm concerned. There's, there's no reason for mandatory minimums. I mean, we... I, I might impose the same sentence without the mandatory minimum, but what's basically flawed about that is that the judges are being told by Congress, you know, how they should go about, you know, discharging their, uh, their, their responsibilities. Their discretion is taken away. Yeah, I guess you can sentence somebody to above the mandatory minimum, maybe once in a while that may be justified, but that's really not uh, what usually happens. Uh, and uh, just conceptually, I just don't understand uh, how uh, judges should have their discretion taken away from them by a political branch of government. I just don't get it. I don't know. Is, There's no justification. Is there an argument um, for doing that on the grounds of rule of law requires you know equal treatment everywhere and, and judges' discretion is contrary to rule of law? Maybe then why don't you have to forget about being a judge? Just have Congress create the laws and sentence people. Well, what's the value of a judge? What's the purpose of a judge? Uh, we're the third branch of government. Even though we're subject to a lot of control by Congress, we are a separate judicial branch. If we're not going to have the discretion to exercise uh, sound judgment, then why even have it? You let Congress impose these sentences. I don't think there's enough attention being called to the interplay between this legislative branch of government and the judicial branch. But what I do feel strongly about is that if you ask people just, uh, you know, randomly, uh, which of the three branches of government today do you have the most respect for? I think that you'll find 90% of the people would say 
the judicial branch of government. I think people look at it as the bastion, you know, to guard against what goes on in Albany, you know, people, you know, violating their office, uh, irrational decision-making. Uh, and uh, I, I think that the federal judiciary, I think, is standing tall these days. You've written about prosecutorial immunity, and there's, in your book, there's stuff about prosecutorial discretion. Does prosecutorial power in general, the current state of things, trouble you? All power has to have checks and balances against it. There's no question about it. And uh, we give prosecutors absolute immunity from uh, civil prosecution, from criminal prosecution as well. Uh, And I think it's time for that to change. We've had, unfortunately, too many wrongful convictions that we've had to deal with, not only in Brooklyn, which has been a major problem, but in uh, the country at large. And uh, a lot of that is because the prosecutors are given absolute immunity and not made to be accountable. I think everybody should be accountable. Judges should be accountable. Prosecutors should be accountable. Uh, doesn't mean you can't have intelligent laws or give people proper protection and give them the uh, freedom to act appropriately. But uh, I don't think unbridled discretion is, is a good thing in any calling in life. In the episode, I simplify the notion of proportionality in sentencing, saying that the punishment should fit the crime. But philosophers distinguish between two types of proportionality, one where the punishment fits the crime, and the other one where the punishment has to fit the whole system of punishment that you're implementing on individuals. This is the distinction that I'm having Zach Hoskins here explain. There are two notions of proportionality that punishment theorists use. One is that your punishment should be proportionate to the crime that you committed. The other is that your punishment should be proportionate relative to other punishments that people receive within the punishment scheme, within the the larger sentencing scheme. The first case would be to say, what was the crime that you committed? How serious was that? And then the severity of your sentence should be somehow proportionate to that relative to that. The other would be to say, other people who have committed similar crimes, what sort of punishment did they receive? And the idea is that your punishment should be proportionate relative to those. Or uh, people who committed more serious crimes than you, so the thinking goes, proportionality dictates that they should receive more serious sentences than yours. So if we could be perfectly sure that every punishment was perfectly proportionate to the crime, to the seriousness of the crime, then to an extent, this other kind of relative proportionality or or ordinal proportionality, as people call it, would sort of come along for free. Because if we made sure that every particular sentence perfectly was proportionate to the particular crime, then relative to each other, they would also be proportionate. But that's very difficult to do. And, you know, if I'm convicted of impersonating a police officer, what do I deserve for that? Do I deserve two days in jail? Do I deserve two years in prison? Do I deserve a fine? turns out it's very hard to say to anchor a a punishment to a crime in that way. And so we do the best we can, and we can say things in more relative terms with somewhat more confidence. We can say, well, should someone who's convicted of murder um, receive a harsher sentence than someone who's convicted of impersonating a police officer? Well, most people are going to have intuitions that, yeah, that that makes more sense. So in sentencing, we often rely on the uh, relative or ordinal proportionality to at least make sure that within a sentencing scheme there's coherence, that the uh, different punishments are proportionate relative to each other. 
And then we hope that we're also getting it right with anchoring all of those punishments within the scheme to the particular offenses. But it's at least possible that you could have an internally coherent, relatively proportionate scheme of punishment that was way too harsh overall. All of the punishments in the scheme were way too harsh, but they were proportionate relative to each other. Um, or possibly it could go the other way. It's in principle, you could possibly have a scheme of punishment that is internally coherent, but is not uh, harsh enough overall. Um, I think that second option is less likely the case that we find in the U.S. today. And finally, a couple of outtakes from my interview with Taya Johnson about fictional pleas. I am extremely confident that fictional pleas are a common occurrence, but it is extremely hard to count how frequently this happens. Um, we can, I guess, figure out the original charge and the charge they pled to, but we can't understand what happened between the original charge and the charge they pled to and why that happened. So to give you another example, in the piece, I bring up this study out of Ohio that was done by a judge in Ohio who now sits on the Ohio Supreme Court, Justice Michael Donnelly. And what he did is he collected sex offense cases in a particular Ohio county over the course of many years. And he looked at how those sex offense cases were resolved. So he can see what is the initial charge coming in, sex offense case that requires sex offender registration, and then how are they exiting the criminal justice system? And what he found is that many of those cases, hundreds of those cases, were exiting as serious cases, but that did not carry sex offender registration. So a child pornography case coming in, but exiting as an assault case. Well, there aren't any elements that match child pornography and assault between those two crimes. You either really committed one or you committed the other, unless there's additional charges or additional allegations. Now, we don't know why those cases are exiting the system the way they are. We could, for instance, find that the police are arresting people on the wrong charges. We could find that cases are being charged the wrong way. But I suspect that one of the big things that's going on there is that defense attorneys are negotiating non-sex offender registrable crimes with prosecutors. And that's why the cases are exiting in a much different manner than the way they're coming in. You write that if everything is a bargaining chip, and in that context you're talking about including what happened, the truth, as part of the bargaining chip, the party that benefits is the one with the most power to negotiate, and that's prosecutors. Could you explain what you meant by that? So although I think defendants benefit from fictional pleas, I don't think that they would agree to fictional pleas if they didn't benefit. In general, I think the fact that prosecutors have such incredible discretion, such wide latitude to decide cases however they want to decide them, ultimately doesn't benefit defendants. It ultimately is another tool in the toolbox of prosecutors. Ultimately, even where a defendant negotiates a very favorable plea, defendants are always in a weaker position than prosecutors because prosecutors really hold all the bargaining chips. It's prosecutors who are the ones who tend to say, you can get this great plea if you give me your constitutional rights. You can get this great plea if you agree to plead to something that doesn't represent the truth of what you actually did. You can get this great plea if you agree to waive your right to effective assistance of counsel. 
that can be quite coercive. And it sounds like from earlier in our conversation, it's not even as though uh, the people who are bargaining uh, have the totality of available evidence before them, and therefore they're bargaining with the evidence. That's just not the case, right? Hundreds of thousands of people in this country are pleading guilty at their arraignment. Arraignment is your first appearance. Nobody truly knows what happened at your first appearance, particularly if that appearance is happening within 24 hours, let's say. That is not enough time to develop the evidence in a particular case. And yet people regularly plead guilty 24 hours after they've been arrested. Now, that might be an appropriate response in many cases. Somebody shoplifts. They know they shoplifted. There's a video. It's going to be fairly easy to prove. We know that within 24 hours. But there's a lot of cases, particularly in cases involving allegations by another person, where we really don't know what happened um, or whether the evidence will be strong or weak or whether the defendant is maybe even innocent. And people are pleading guilty early and often in cases because it's a way to get the case done. It's sometimes a way to get out of prison or jail, I should say. And um, and it's very much the mindset of the institutional actors. Let's plead these cases out. And that's prosecutors and defense attorneys. But it, to be clear, there are lots of times where prosecutors are accepting plea bargains and they really haven't yet fully developed the facts of the case. Um, I always say that what's fascinating about trials and what I experienced when I was I was a public defender and when I used to go to trial is Facts come out in all sorts of ways you can't even predict. Some witnesses are terrific. Some witnesses turn out that they're lying. Sometimes the evidence looks like it was going to be really strong against the client, and then it turns out to be incredibly weak. Sometimes it's the opposite. But you don't know until you're sitting in that courtroom and you actually start to hear the evidence come out. That's when you have a true understanding of what a case is all about. And in 95 to 99% of cases, we never get that. The final question I asked Taya Johnson was, if prosecutors and judges have as much of a problem with collateral consequences as defendants do, why do they have them plead to anything fictional at all? Why not just drop the charges so that the person isn't going to face unjust punishment at all? To me, this is really one of the most interesting parts of fictional pleas is because it teaches us something about plea bargaining writ large. One response to the legislature passing laws that prosecutors believe are unfair is simply to drop cases in which those particular penalties would be triggered. That would send a very clear message to the legislature, hey, don't pass mandatory sex offender registration on every single sex crime, because that will put us in a position where if we think sex offender registration is unfair, we're going to drop the crime. We're, we're going to drop the charge, I should say. That's not really happening. You can imagine one reason that's not happening is there would be tremendous political blowback, and most prosecutors are elected officials. Um, I also think that we have a system in which plea bargaining is the way we solve problems. So we don't ask about bigger solutions to these problems. Hey, how do we solve this really big issue, which is sex offender registration leads to all these terrible consequences. So it makes prosecutors really feel queasy sometimes about 
you know, imposing sex offender registration on a defendant. Instead, we say, how can we solve this problem through plea bargaining? And through plea bargaining, basically, we've learned you can kind of solve any individual problem for an individual defendant. The question is, is what ends up happening in terms of a structural change? And I think prior to the problem is plea bargaining allows us never to look at the structural problems with the system. <laughs>